0: Hello everyone, Eve Harrow, Director of Community Development and Tourism, for one Israel Fund. I want to welcome you to the newest in our series of webinars that we have been running since, I guess, the theme with tonight's uh, lecture, um, A Plague of Biblical Proportions at the World, and many of you have not been able to come to Israel, so we've been trying to bring Israel to you via webinars, politicians, journalists, experts on Judea and Samaria, which is, of course... When Israel's fund, Fund's niche, but also about Israel and the region. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the fund, we are the premier organization for close to 30 years now, supporting the Jews who live in Yudava Judea and Samaria, the ones who used to live in Gaza, and now, of course, the Gaza Envelope. Uh, our last virtual video, which we've been putting out about one a month, um, going into the communities, seeing people, talking to people. So the last one that we just put out last week, if you haven't seen it yet, the Netiva Asara, the community just north of the Gaza Strip. And the really, like, you, you can't even make these people up, the people that live there. Really, they inspire me, they'll inspire you. And that's what we do here. We build parks, we do a lot of security. And uh, we just want to make life as normal as possible for the Jews who live in the wonderful communities in Yehudah Shamron. Um, We are actually starting to run a mission now that hopefully Israel is going to be opening up a little bit. We're running a mission at the beginning of November. If you're interested, you can be in touch with the office. And I hope as director of tourism, that pretty soon I'll be taking buses out. And those of you who are coming to Israel, be on our mailing list. You can see when the buses are going out, we'll take you to places that you've probably never been. And uh, really our trips can be totally life-changing. So get involved and keep in touch with us. And uh, we're just happy to see you here tonight. And I in particular, I'm really excited about uh, tonight's guest, um, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, professor of Tanakh at Bar Ilan University. One of the too few people in the world who can deal with biblical criticism because he knows it from the academic side, and also, of course, has Smicha, he's a rabbi, went to Haratzion Yeshiva. So he has put out books, including Anima Amin. I interviewed him when the book came out about a year and a half ago, I believe. Um, and just a fascinating, I'm sure you'll enjoy tonight's uh tonight's lecture, which is going to be about Egypt, the Tanakh and, uh, and Egypt. And I, he's running a trip at the end of January to Egypt. I think it's possibly the first time that there's a kosher and Shabbat-oriented trip to Egypt. I think I was possibly the first person to sign up for it. And as I just found out, it sold out. So, But we're going to hear some of what we're going to be hearing in January. Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining us here tonight on One Is Our Funds Webinar.
1: Okay. Thank you, Eve. And uh, good evening to uh, all of our viewers and listeners.
0: All right. By the way, for those of you who don't know where you are and what day it is, which is a lot of us, it is October 18th, 2021. And in Israel, where we're broadcasting from, it's already the 13th day of Cheshvan, 5782. Okay. So Rabbi Berman, tell us a little bit about like, how did you become, I mean, we all would like to think as people who know the Bible, we all kind of know Egypt, right? We spent a lot of time there. A lot of the biblical stories are in Egypt. What makes your expertise with Egypt so
1: unique. Hmm. So obviously, uh, uh, you know, we sit at the Seder table every year and we read the stories and, and, and Chumash. Uh, Mitzrayim is Egypt is, is always on our mind. Uh, it is without, without doubt uh, the most mentioned location in the Tanakh outside of the locations of, of the land of Israel itself. And so we have this kind of image uh, informed by our biblical texts. Uh, but I'm coming from a totally different place. What I am trying to get in touch with, together with colleagues of mine uh, across the pond, um, uh, many of them uh, uh, conservative Christian scholars, uh, is to understand the realia, the deep connection between the Tanakh and particularly the Torah and particularly uh, Sefer Shmalt, the book of Exodus, and what we, can, what we see when we visit Egypt, when we unearth the archeological findings there, when we read the inscriptions and the papyri and suddenly things burst into three dimensions and full color. Things that we read in Khrush that we thought we understood and now, whoa, the reality just comes alive. Wow.
0: So, I mean, when we talk about Egypt today is very different than the Egypt that was, right? The Egyptian civilization that the Tanakh goes into it, it, we're not going to see those egyptians anymore right there's
1: going to be no one walking sideways when we're in egypt this, this uh well you, you, well well work? you'll see some mummies that's for sure but okay but most importantly um let me let me if i can if i can just bring up uh my my powerpoint presentation please I so I, I took this last january when i was on a tour that i'll speak about soon but that's okay. what you can see already tells us what's so special about touring around in Egypt. See, when we're touring around, you know, the wonderful places in Eretz Israel, largely what we're looking at is the topography and the, the places themselves. Right. Structures, not so much. And pictures and inscriptions, zero, like almost nothing at all. You know, you go to Rome or Greece, you have big buildings, but you don't have what you see in front of you here. Endless inscriptions, endless pictures, perfectly preserved because there's no moisture and because Egypt is surrounded by desert on three sides and the Mediterranean on the fourth. It means that very few conquering armies came in and tore everything down. And so when you have a guide who can show you what's going on, as in the things that you see in front of you now, it's endless what you have access to. So you might not see, you know, uh, uh, Egyptians from the time of the Exodus walking around, but you will see the pictures that they drew, and you will read the inscriptions that they wrote, and they are endless and perfectly preserved. So
0: how do you connect this, what we're looking at here, for example, to the Tanakh? Mm -hmm. It's in terms of the context of the time of the Tanakh, or are there hints to what we read or our story that we can find?
1: Yeah, endlessly, endless, endless, endless look let me let me give one little tidbit okay that everybody here is going to hear this now and i promise you will remember what i'm about to say until seder table and you will say it at your okay. Seder table okay? okay all right we all know that um, uh, at the seder table we read and it's based on verses in the torah that hashem took us out of egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I guess most of us just assume that that's kind of a, a, a metaphor for the almighty's might. And it's coming to say that it was, you know, it was done with power and it was miraculous. Now, now, what's interesting about those words, Yad Chazakab is run to a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, is that you might have thought, you might have expected that throughout the Tanakh, whenever the Almighty does a miracle, that, that scripture would say, ah, and there goes the Almighty with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. But that's not the case. Sometimes you have the Yad HaGdola, or Yad Hashem, the hand of God. But that phrase, mighty hand, an outstretched arm, uh, you don't really find that anywhere other than with reference to the events of the Exodus. And there's good reason for that. And those good reasons you only discover when you go to places like what you see on the screen. Because during what's called the Egyptian New Kingdom, that's when Egypt, ancient Egypt was at its zenith, which also happens to be the period of the servitude in Egypt, of the Jews in Egypt. What we find is that All of the inscriptions that describe the acts of the pharaohs of that period, they all routinely use this phrase, mighty hand and outstretched arm. Uh, (laughs) The pharaoh went and he bashed the Libyans with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Uh, The pharaoh one day went on a hunting expedition and bagged 120 elephants. There's an inscription like that with his mighty hand. Uh, One day the pharaoh was walking and he came across a diamond the size of a fist of the hand and he picked it up with his outstretched arm. And all of this, this is a trope uh, that, that these inscriptions use to describe the Pharaoh. And what the Torah is doing is what's called cultural appropriation. It's where you steal the thunder of the oppressor in order to fight cultural resistance. And this is what the Torah is doing. It's saying, you think you have a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? Ha!" watch what the God of Israel does against the Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So that's, I think a beautiful idea. And you only get that when you understand the ancient Egyptian context in which the Torah is written.
0: Well, so we've got a question from one of our many uh, viewers tonight, which is outside of the book of Exodus, is there proof that this story happened? And, And it's not just biblical critics who will say, well, the Jewish people, it got a little crowded on the coast. We were just one of the groups of Canaanites and it was a little crowded on the coast. So we moved into the hills and the whole story of Egypt really never happened. And of course, Sinai never happened and none of that ever happened. So how do we know those of us who read the Tanakh and, and take it literally that this is the story? That's that's one aspect. But do, do we know and does going to Egypt itself? in some way illuminate, or I don't wanna use the word prove because it's very hard to prove something that happened so long ago, but how does it add to our understanding of that time period and what might've actually happened?
1: Sure, I think that there is ample evidence for the Exodus, maybe not in every detail, maybe not you know, uh, 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 evidence of sea splitting, but certainly of Israelite presence in Egypt at this time and of coming out out of this a- ample evidence, and here's how it works. You see, all the critics that, that, that say, well, there's no proof. What they're doing is, and it's legitimate. It's, and I don't think it's necessarily with an ax to grind or anti-Semitic mm-hmm. or, 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 or right. atheistic. Um, they will say, well, look, the Torah tells us about Hebrews. We look in everything we know about Egyptian inscriptions, no Hebrews. We look what they said about Israelites, no Israelites. We look about Moses, no Moses. We look about slaves upping and outing. No, there's no mention of that. And Obviously, there's no mention of the plague. So <laughs> case closed. Okay. What I say, what my colleagues say, is we need to uh, uh, invert the way in which we work. Rather than looking for what the Torah says, in Egypt, let's look about what we know about Egypt in the Torah. And that's where the, that's where the catch is. Because what we find is that the, the Torah, uh, using the same principle of cultural appropriation that I mentioned before, of polemicizing, of fighting back, of out the Pharaoh with his own thunder, we see this on a grand scale, particularly with one particularly important inscription from no less than Ramses the Great, who was the greatest pharaoh of the greatest period, the New Kingdom, which I mentioned before, uh, 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 in Egypt. And I, I have a bunch of slides that I can show about that Please. if you want me to move to well, that.
0: Yeah, okay, absolutely. absolutely.
1: All right. So what great.
0: you're saying is that whoever wrote the Bible, let's leave that for a second, yeah. New Egypt.
1: Yes. Intimately, intimately, intimately in a way that you could only know if you were living in the 13th century BCE in Egypt itself. Okay. Now, let me just say that uh, uh, a lot of what we're going to be discussing here, this is from uh, my my book, which uh, you graciously hosted me uh, the last time we spoke. Uh, Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith, Magid, 2020. Uh, Okay, so, um, all right, it all starts with uh, the the, the inscription that that is really key here is um, an inscription by Ramses II, Ramses the Great. Let me just say that it's called the Kaddish inscriptions. Let me explain what this is. Okay, so here we have a map of the region, okay? And uh, you can see on the bottom left, we have uh, Egypt in kind of uh, skin tone color, at least that's what it is on my screen. And we have Canaan also in that color because because during the new kingdom, uh, Canaan was under Egyptian influence. In fact, the term Canaan, Canaan, is an Egyptian term. In fact, the Torah's uh, borders for Canaan, when it talks about you will enter into Eretz Canaan and here are the borders of the land, are the borders of the Egyptian province of Canaan, of Canaan. Okay, it's like if you were outlining, you know, what is Romania and you had Austria's view and Hungary's view. And okay, this is the Egyptian view. That's part of the Egyptian uh, uh, context of all this. Now, to the north of Canaan, which here will include Lebanon and part of Syria, you have the Hittite Empire, the white area in modern day Turkey. Okay, during the time of Ramses the Great. Uh, The the two superpowers, if you will, in the region were Egypt in the south and the Hittite Empire in the north. And they jockeyed for control uh, uh, in the areas in the middle. And they had a huge, huge um, uh, battle where it says Orantes River, which is on the Syrian coast today, where scholars believe was the greatest chariot battle of all time. Thousands of chariots on each side. Okay. And in fact, we have inscriptions about this battle, both from the Egyptian side and from the Hittite side. Now, what's, what's so important about this battle is not really what happened. We don't really know. And it's so interesting. You go there today, you can't find anything, anything, right? Really? The, this, this, yes, this gives, this, gives uh, uh, this highlights that old maxim, uh, uh, a- absence of evidence is not evidence of, a- of, of, uh, of absence. Right. 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 Uh, And so, and so, absence of
0: proof is not proof of absence. Right. Right. Thank you. Same idea. In other words, when
1: you have the Egyptians saying, "Yep, we had a big battle there," and the Hittites saying, "Yep, we had a big battle there," and you go there and we know exactly where it is and you can't find a thing, well, that just tells you not everything gets preserved. Okay. Now, now, what's important here is that when Ramses comes home, right, he goes back down south to Egypt. He does, he makes this battle of Kadesh that's on the Orontes River here. It's not Kadesh that we have in Chomish, Kadesh Barnea, which is in Sinai. Is a popular name for places. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kadesh is is, is a little town here on the Orontes River. Ramses goes home and he makes the battle of Kadesh the single most publicized event in all of ancient history. Greece and Rome included. What do I mean by that? Here, look, many of us have been to the Arch of Titus in Rome, okay? There's one Arch of Titus, okay? When Ramses goes back to Egypt, we know today of at least 10 different places where he put up inscriptions and pictures of this Battle of Kadesh, okay? Hmm. So the fact that it's done in so many places that we know of, let alone all the places that are no longer with us in Egypt, makes it the most publicized event of, of, of ancient history. Now, um, uh, can
0: we assume that he won or he wanted people to think um he won or it
1: doesn't it, matter? Oh, well, okay. It depends who you ask. The Hittites <laughs> don't think he won. The Egyptians okay. are certain that he won. <laughs> um, you know, uh, some things like don't change. Today. You know? Right, exactly. yeah, you, know, you, we, you know, you, you right. said okay. you started at the outset, Eve, how different things must have been back then. In some ways, yes, And in some ways,
0: no. no. Okay, good.
1: Now, at at these different sites, which you and I will be visiting up to God when we go in January, Mm -hmm. um, we see that Ramses puts up uh, both uh, prose and poetry inscriptions about it and also um, base reliefs, like little cartoons, okay?
0: Now, this is in hieroglyphics. Excuse the maybe stupid question.
1: But this is, you know, this is, I mean, yes, you have hieroglyphics here on the right side, uh, of the picture but mostly it's it's a picture that anybody can see. And the reason they made they made these pictures is for the probably for the masses who didn't know hieroglyphics but they still wanted to teach them lessons. Kind of like if you will uh, in 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 churches in the Middle Ages where they had stained glass windows. So people mm-hmm. couldn't read their biblical text, so they looked up and they, they learned whatever whatever they needed to mm-hmm. learn from the from the images in the stained glass windows. Now, okay. Scholars in the 1930s noticed the following thing. They noticed that at a bunch of these sites, we see and we see a depiction of Ramsey's camp at, at, uh, at, at Kadesh. This is in a place called the Luxor Temple, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, and you can see there's, there's a wall that goes around. Can you see my right. cursor as it moves? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, great, great. There's a wall that goes around and in the middle of the camp, right? You have here troops and they're kind of camped out. You have this, this structure here. Okay, this is Ramsey's throne tent, okay? And what scholars noted is that it has two chambers, a bigger one, which Mm -hmm. has the dimensions of two by one, and a smaller one that has dimensions of one by one, okay? This would be like the outer chamber, and this would be where Ramses would kind of hold hold camp, okay, or hold forth in the camp. Uh, Here's another site, uh, uh, another temple, Uh, also here again, you see the wall that goes around the camp Mm -hmm. and you see in the middle, this is Ramsey's throne tent, two chambers, one that is two by one and one that is one by one. Okay. Perfectly. And here's uh, yet another, another site that we're going to be visiting. Same thing. You have the wall that goes around. Okay. And then you have Ramsey's throne tent here. Here you have people bowing down in abeyance to him in the outer in the outer chamber two mm-hmm. by one and the inner chamber we're gonna I'm gonna blow this up for you in a second one by one okay now now what's so important about this is how similar mm. this is to this is starting
0: Mish- to look familiar the yeah. Mishkan
1: okay the it's Mishkan happening. has a a uh, fence around it okay and of course in the middle the king's from tent, if you will, Hashem, God's, the God's being tent. Hashem, okay, okay. that's right. Okay. With two chambers, one which is two by one, and one which is one by one, okay. And uh, of course, the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, is itself a military encampment. That is, in the in the Book of Numbers, after all this is built up, uh, the children of Israel. Become a, a military force with with tribes all around, just like Ramsey's throne tent had his troops all around. And so, what scholars concluded is that there is a remarkable similarity between the throne the throne tent and the the camp of Ramses II at the Battle of Kadesh, and in the the uh, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, as well, with what we call the Kodesh, the larger, the two by one chamber. And the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kadashim, which has dimensions of one by one, and both the entrance is from the east. In Egyptian mm-hmm. maps, the east is on the left. I'm not sure why. Maybe because the Nile flows north. Flows northward, but this is it's just the way that it is. Okay. Hmm. Now, now, what's so important about this is that. Um, not only is there a similarity, you see, similarity between two things when you're doing scholarship is not enough. You need to show that this is singular. In other words, let me put it this way, if there are many other, let's say, shrines, temples in the ancient Near East that have fences around them, that have two chambers with these dimensions, then this parallel is meaningless. But the fact of the matter is that we we know of no other structures that look like the Mishkan from the ancient world other than Ramses' camp that looks yeah. like this. And there are no other throne camps in, in, that we know about in the ancient Near East that have these dimensions here. Um, before, I'm going to blow up now this, this image here. This is the throne tent of, of, uh, of Ramses at uh, the temple in Abu Simbel, which is on the uh, Sudanese border. And this is what it looks like, okay? Now here you have Here you have uh, two by one and here you have one by one. But now watch what's happening here in the middle. Do you see this? These are Horus falcons. They have their wings stretched out. And in the middle is what's called a cartouche. That means a seal that has the name of Ramses on it. Or they're not gonna draw Ramses in tiny little proportions. So they have a seal that says on it, Ramses. So you have these Horus falcons uh, or falcons that represent the, the Egyptian deity Horus and they are spreading their wings over Ramses. And, of course, in the Mishkan, right, in the Mishkan, so we have, yeah, exactly, well, you can't see, it's kind of small here, but yes, you have the throne of Hashem, as it were, of the Almighty, and you have the the Kruvim, uh, the cherubs, who are spreading their wings, uh, kind of as a place where the divine presence dwells in the middle it's that close. It's really that close. And the theory already from the 1930s is that none of this is by accident, and that what the Torah is doing here is a grand exercise in what I labeled before cultural appropriation. That is, uh, for the Israelites who are coming out, at least by the Torah's account, they can't really see him. You know, sometimes they maybe can see miracles, they can't see him we can't really hear him. And so there is a need to concretize. So how, do we, how can we relate to this deity? And the answer is, well, think about the greatest act of the greatest king of the greatest period in Egyptian history, Re, the, the, the victory of Ramses the Great over mm-hmm. the Hittites at the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE. And all of the big monuments that he puts up all over the place and to then say, "Ha, we are turning that on Ramses, and now using that to, to help us concretize our notion of Melech Malche Hamalachim, the king, the of ultimate
0: kings. king." Yeah. So, two things, two things pop into mind. Yeah. One is, so it looks like the Israelites—they're leaving Egypt—and like you just said, this is like the the best expression of the most amazing king that they can do. However, I could see other people saying. But in the Tanakh, isn't this unique? Like, what you're, what you're saying is that the tabernacle, which ends up in Shiloh for a certain number of years, and then turns into the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, I and mean, it's built along the si- same lines, is not something unique to the Jewish people, if you will, but it's a copy of something Egyptian. So doesn't that minimize, I, I could see some people saying this, doesn't this minimize God's uh, special connection to the Jews and the Torah and the fact that we're starting something new with this whole idea of monotheism and a God that you can't see. There's just some kind of representation, but that's not actually the God himself. Is that something that, that people have brought up to you?
1: Sure. Sure. Listen, listen, a lot of very good uh, good Jews and good Christians, for that matter, uh, um, uh, have a, 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 a an appropriate, a a pristine view of scripture, that scripture is uh, God's word and therefore uh, perfect and therefore kind of unconnected to our world and unique. Right. Unique in its expression, unique in the way it's written. It uh, was written before the world was even created. So then what happened? And therefore incomparable to any other Mm -hmm. piece of literature. Okay. That's a view that's out there. Now, let me tell you Maimonides' view, okay, the Rambam. Uh, Maimonides, in the Guide to the Perplexed, in the third section of that great work, uh, he engages in a, a discussion of each of the mitzvot, each of the commandments, and finding the reasons for it. And time after time, especially with regard to things having to do with cultic worship, sacrifices, tabernacle, temple, etc., cetera, the way in which Maimonides' rationalizes, explains, finds the meaning of the various laws that we have in those realms is with reference to ancient worship, ancient custom. He does this time and time again. And in fact, Maimonides says in the end of the Guide to the Perplexed, oh, if only I had more access to the ancient Near East, then I would understand the Torah even better. Okay. Wow. Which is and he lived he,
0: in Egypt. And he lived in Egypt.
1: Well, he did live in yeah. Egypt, but he didn't know any of this. You know, this right. was all under right. his under understand. his nose,
0: but he didn't know. Yeah, wow.
1: Well, yeah, and under his imagine? feet because it was all covered right. by sand. Yeah. This is that 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 same image that I had before. This is an actual photograph from within uh-huh. that temple itself. Now, now, now the Rambam certainly did not feel, oh my gosh, you mean the Torah is just the, the the Mishkan, the tabernacle is just a knockoff. No, the answer, what Ramadity says time after time when he goes, when he makes this move of comparing things in the Torah to what existed beforehand, always it's that what the Torah is doing is adopting and adapting. It is taking what was familiar to the slaves when they came out of Egypt and then tweaking it to make it one step better, to bring it, to bring them one step closer to the higher levels of abstraction, which of course Maimonides was, was a great champion of. Uh, hmm. And so all the things that I have, all the things that I see are, are exactly in that in that vein as well, okay?
0: Okay. So let me ask you something about the years because this is where things also get a little interesting. Um, you said 13th century, which is the minus 1200s, all right? But if we're already talking about the Mishkan, so we start, there's, there's a, there's, it's unclear when did the Exodus happen if our sources say that the Mishkan, the tabernacle stood in Shiloh for 369 years and more or less in minus 1,000, we have David and Jerusalem. You don't fit 369 years in from minus 1,250, let's say, into 1,000. So right. how, do, how does all this, how, how do we figure this out?
1: Yeah. Right, right. So, so sorting out the years can be a thorny process. If you assume that all of the references to years uh, in the Torah and the Tanakh are literal and quantitative right. and statistic, um, it's clear that when you add up, for example, all of the all of the years that are mentioned in the Book of Judges, that the period of time you have there is too long. It can't it can't fit all those people. Uh, so maybe some of it is overlapping. Um, What is important here to understand is that very often in the Tanakh uh, um, uh, numbers, especially large ones, uh, are demonstrably serving uh, um, um, uh, uh, non-literary means. Okay. Okay. Can you Um, give us an example? Well, sure. Okay. I'll tell you something uh, uh, because I have good source for it religiously. uh, uh, And that is a comment made by that's Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, one of the greatest sages of Lithuania in the 19th century, who wrote a commentary on the Chumash, on the on, on the Torah, uh, uh, called Heamech Davar. And he makes the following comment. When the Torah says in Genesis 46 that Jacob went down to Egypt with 70 souls, mm-hmm. okay, and not only does the Torah say that there were 70, it then gives a roll call. Of yeah. seventy names, sixty-nine names, maybe he's the seventieth. But you That's know, you have, yeah. you have you have seemingly cross validation there. The number of seventy, and then sixty-nine names. Okay, so it, it, what's left to discuss about how many went down? <laughs> and then it, Steve says there were not seventy; there were more. Why does he say this? He says this because. He says in the verses prior, it says that Jacob went down with his sons and his daughters, and uh, his daughters-in-law, and his granddaughters and his grandsons. And when you look at that list of 69 names, there are only two that are women. Right. And you know, you say, Wow, those girls, they had great marriage possibilities, <laughs> you know, if there's really? 67 to the lucky girls. So yeah. he says, Well, it must be then that these numbers. Are 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 non-literal. And he gives a, a number of accountings of what the significance might be in my book that I referenced before. <laughs> uh, I have other other uh, yeah. other ways of looking at that that number 70. Or I'll just give you another example. I, I, I have another PowerPoint, but I can say this, I can say this orally. It's 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 really, really easy to grasp and super cool. Uh, I have a colleague at Bari Lan University named Dr. Neria Klein, and he studied numbers in the book of Chronicles. OK, what's important about that is that is that the numbers are astronomic. I mean, armies are enormous, 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 enormous. And the numbers are thrown around and they're not round numbers. They're not round numbers. And what you find is that the very largest set of armies is by uh, uh, Jehoshaphat. And he had a total of 1,160,000 soldiers. You know, you look at that number, 1,160,000, you say, you know, if it said he had a million soldiers, okay, I feel like like a million bucks. A million? Yeah. But to say 1,160,000, like that sounds like they're really counting something, no? And what he shows is that when you look in the chapters before, he was a good king. And he had exactly twice the the number of soldiers that his father, who was not as good a king, and his father had exactly the sum total of the kings that preceded him. That can't be by accident. This is the Tanakh's way of giving grades. Who is a good king? Who is a better king? And so we see that in a lot of places, the Tanakh is using the numbers, not to give us statistics, because really, who cares, but to, to give us meaning and message. And I believe that, that is the case with the numbers of the Exodus as well, actually.
0: Really? In what mm-hmm. sense?
1: Okay. If we say that there were, the, the, the Torah says that 600,000 men right. came out of Egypt, which which then that's just the men of fighting age, right? When mm-hmm. you take women, children, elderly, then we're up to easily two to three million people. Okay. And yet there are so many things that don't fit with that. So, for example, when you see the number of firstborn in the Torah, then it would turn out if that if the number of firstborn that are mentioned, then that would mean that every woman was giving birth to about 60 people. And the Torah never really make, seems to make that claim. Um, mm-hmm. What you find is that the Torah says that when they crossed the Red Sea, they arrived at a, uh, uh, at a place called um, um, Elima, Elima. And, and there... Uh, the children of Israel had uh, uh, 70, 70 uh, date trees and 12 springs. Maybe the springs were huge, but we know how large date, date, date trees yes. are. Each date tree fed 30,000 people? That can't be. Or consider the number of, of priests that were in the time of the desert, right? Priests are descendants of Aaron, okay? He had four sons maybe, maybe there were a total of 20, 25 priests in the desert. Well, when you look at all of the sacrifices that the book of of Leviticus mandates from the Jewish people at that time, I mean, how could 3 million people be served by just 25 priests? Or when you see that the Torah says in in, in two places, uh, it says it in, 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 in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, you are the smallest of peoples we are the smallest of peoples, really? That means that in, that in the land of Israel, there were 30 million people here? Or when Exodus 23 says, says I'm bringing you into the land and you will, you will conquer it bit by bit because you're too small to take over the whole thing right now. Really, 3 million people is too small? No, it's not. So we have many, many, many counterproofs within the Torah itself that seem to suggest that the number is not in the millions. And I believe that this is because there's significance to the numbers, the numbers of each tribe, I think have significance, that's in the book. We can, we can leave that for You're another right. time, okay? Right. But none of that has to do so much with what we see in, in, in ancient in ancient Egypt. Here, I'll just give uh, some other Please. things. Here's, let me give okay. some other examples of things that, that we're all very familiar with that suddenly burst into color from a black and white uh, drawing. So um, this, this image, okay, is all over Egypt. This is a typical, I would say, the, the kind of classic pose of a pharaoh. Here you have the pharaoh, okay, and he's got a mace, all right, in his right hand, and he's about to swing it around and shatter the heads of enemy prisoners, okay? Mm-hmm. And you see this for 3,000 years of, of pictures in Egypt, you see this. This is kind of like, kind of pictures that I'm sure we've, or paintings, We've all seen uh, paintings from, let's say, uh, uh, the early modern age in Europe, where there's a king on a horse, and the horse rears its 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 right. its front hoofs. You know, even we, we all, when I say that, you've seen it because every king posed like that. right? So right. in ancient Egypt, this was the pose. Okay. Now, now, again, what do we have here? Right hand. It's always the right hand, bearing a mace, about to shatter the heads of the enemies. Okay. In Mm -hmm. Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea, when we say your right hand shatters the enemy, it's playing off of this image. And it's only in Egypt because everywhere else in the ancient Near East, the right hand holds things, but you never see the phrase shattering. It's only in pictures like this. So it comes alive. And the accounts that Ramses had of that battle of Kaddish that I mentioned before, we looked at the pictures. I then looked at the actual account of the battle, and it follows stage by stage exactly what we find in Exodus 14 and 15, the fleeing from the Egyptians, the the chariots chasing after them, uh, uh, the defeat of those chariots, and then a, 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 a song of praise. The Song of the Sea. And line by line, there are similarities with, with uh, 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 the, 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 the song that Ramses' soldiers sing to him. And it's all this cultural appropriation. It's all turning Ramses on his head. And, and there's no way that anyone could have had access to this uh, outside of the 13th century BCE in Egypt. And therefore, this to my mind is the strongest proof that B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel or in Egypt, they experienced something that they uh, understood as liberation from Ramses II, and they attributed this to the Almighty. Okay.
0: Hmm. That, that's wild. But the problem that we have over 3000 years later is that we don't know the context of ancient Egypt, right? I mean, you're, the Chumash, the five books of Moses, as we were, were written with that context in mind. What you're saying is anybody reading them would get the connection. That's right. And get my God is more powerful than the most powerful king in the entire world. Right. But here we are, so much later, and still reading this book, and not, of course, not just the Jews reading this book. I mean, the Bible is a is a holy book for so many people around the world. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't I mean maybe this is too much to ask, but what along the way, all the sages and the prophets. And of course we have Nach, we have the Nevi, we have the editions that, that came, that were written for hundreds of years afterwards. They, they still saw what you're mentioning now, like they still had enough of a glimmer because nobody says, listen guys, put on your Egyptian glasses before you read this book because otherwise you're not gonna understand, you're not gonna be able to read between the lines as it were. And that right. opened up an entire world of critics or of other people who say, this is Baba Mises. I mean, this was written by D, by P, by F, different times, different periods, re-edited, redacted. This isn't, it's a nice book, but it, it didn't, it's not a historical book. Right. Well, so, I don't know if this is a fair question. Like sure. how, how are we supposed to deal with this over all these years?
1: Right. So as I, as I mentioned before, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm riding on the shoulders of Maimonides on this one, who, 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 was, who, didn't, who didn't bat an eyelash about saying this that there are aspects of the Torah that have been hidden to us for a long time. Look, according to our tradition, the Torah has 70 faces, okay? That means that it communicates its ideas in many different ways on many different levels, okay? This is just one of them. Now, listen, I mean, the phrase that God took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched Mm -hmm. arm, you don't know anything about Egypt, you still get the idea, right? All I've done is to add another layer, another dimension, another hue, another color. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that now today, thank God, I would say uh, that we have so much more knowledge than the Rambam had Maimonides uh, and, and that doing this work is the holy work of recovering many of these contexts and elements of the text. Um, and sometimes with the, the, the produce really remarkable ideas. Look, what you have on the screen right now okay that's very nice. Now we understand you mean ha your right hand shatters the enemy and we understand that this is an, an appropriation of an Egyptian trope. That's nice okay but that's small okay let me show you Eve something big okay please all right this is just a, you know here this is a drawing. this is what it looks right. like when you're outside. Uh, you know obviously the, the, all these uh, uh, monuments etc and temples they're blocks you know, and uh, right. so stuff is, is engraved, but you can see the same thing here, right? The right hand and mm-hmm. it's, it's shattering the, uh, the enemies. This is all over the place. Look carefully at this picture. Okay, let me, let, me, let me narrate what's going on here, okay? So you see, you have two figures, a man and a woman, mm-hmm. okay? And it's a, a rather uh, um, intimate picture. That is the man has uh, his hand mm-hmm. around her waist. And she has her hand over here around Mm -hmm. his shoulder. And, you know, I mean, if we looked at the next shot. Looking at each
0: other,
1: yeah. You know, they're looking at each other. And if we had the next shot, you know, we can imagine what they would be doing, right? Okay, now, what is going on here? This is the pharaoh, okay? Mm -hmm. Many pharaohs. This picture is all over the place. And this is a goddess, okay? Mm -hmm. This is a goddess. And they're like, you know, you, know, you can see they're like about to kiss practically. They are literally gazing at each other, okay? The idea uh, 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 in Egyptian terms is that uh, the Pharaoh is chosen by the gods, loved by the God, and almost an equal because he is fulfilling on earth what the God wants, okay? And so uh, a kind of a sign of his election of his status uh, and of his closeness to God is the idea that he looks at the God and the God looks at him eye to eye, Mm
0: -hmm. okay?
1: Now we have the depiction in Deuteronomy and Sefer Dvarim at Mount Sinai. And Moses says, at Mount Sinai, you looked at God panim el panim, face Mm. to face, okay? Now that's kind of interesting because generally throughout Tanakh, we say lo yir ani We're not able to see God and, and survive. He's not visible. If we see him, we'll be blinded. And so the, 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 the phrase, the trope panima panim that we looked at God face-to-face maybe like the Pharaoh and the goddess here uh, is striking. So first thing is that we can understand face-to-face is not is, is intimacy, but it's election just like the Pharaoh is elected by uh, uh, the goddess, Am Yisrael, the children of Israel are elected by God. But now here's the big takeaway, okay? What is happening here in this this, uh, uh, carving, in this inscription is a sign of the intimacy between a goddess and a king. And what the Torah does is to take that type of notion of intimacy with the God, and it applies it now not to the king of Am Yisrael, to Moshe Rabbeinu, or to some later king, but to the Mm -hmm. entire people. The entire people are elevated to the level which in their host culture in Egypt was only attained by a king. And this is part of a larger enterprise the Torah has to elevate the status of the common man, to be like a king. And it comes through in a whole bunch of things. The fact that Am Yisrael are called children to God. In ancient Near Eastern sources, the children to gods are only the kings. Uh, We make a treaty with God at Sinai. In in the ancient world, treaties were between kings. And so there's there's several things that this fits in with, but all of this demonstrates an an attempt to treat every member of Am Yisrael as a king. And so when we all look at Hashem, Panim al Panim, it's a big raise in the, in, the, in, in the status of the common person. So here's an example, unlike you know here or here where, okay, now I understand a little bit of the Tfilah of our prayers. I understand another half a verse in the book of Exodus. Uh, here we come away with, wow, this was like really beyond its time that the common person in society had high status, okay?
0: Yeah. I mean, just thinking about it, like from a social perspective, right? If in the ancient world and even in some countries, I would say today, you have the caste system, you have hierarchies, right? You can't you're born into one and that's where you're going to be for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, those of us who grew up in the West, I assume most of the viewers are from some kind of Western country. You work hard enough, you get enough of an education. You can move from wherever you were born into a different kind of a status. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the ancient world, you were locked in, so I can exactly. see this. If you'll excuse the expression, being a very seductive message for a
1: people, yeah, that, yeah. especially a people who were slaves. Right, I have a whole book about this. It's called "Created Equal: How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought," and this is the underlying uh, message of the book that throughout the ancient the ancient world, uh, um, uh, uh, w- one thing was known for sure: men are not created equal. Everywhere in the ancient world, there was caste and hierarchy right. and stratification. And only if you knew your place in society and everyone knew their place, boom, 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 only then would, would things work. Otherwise, there would just be anarchy. It's not that they, didn't, they weren't creative enough to think of equality. They thought that would be anarchy. And what you have in the Torah is the first attempt to take power away from kings and from priests. Because in the Torah, kings and priests have far less power than anywhere else in the ancient Near East and to give far more attention to the common people.
0: And it's also highlighted in the Torah when they mess up. I mean, there there's no, if anything, the, the wars right. that we win are not so much recorded as the ones that we've lost.
1: Right, right, right. Mm-hmm.
0: astonishing. Right,
1: right, right.
0: To really the, humanize the, and the, even, sto- even. And later. the
1: stories of the Torah are about the common people mostly you don't have that anywhere else in the ancient near east all the stories are only about kings and only about their victories and the temples they built there's never stories about the people never who cares mm-hmm. they, they don't have any they don't have any status
0: so i mean hearing you speak about the bible is is really and i don't know if the viewers are feeling the same thing this isn't and i'm not minimizing it in any way shape or form not just a religious book which for many people it is we you know, Jews pull it out on Shabbat and we, we read the portion of the week and we study
1: the Torah. But this is actually a world-changing book. Yes, yes, there is. Look, uh, the, the, there, you know, there have been a lot of great political thinkers over the course of time, over the course of history. And maybe each thinker had their own little chidush, their own little point that they moved, that they moved thought a little bit forward but nothing is as, as really revolutionary and totally diametrically opposed to everything around it as much as the Torah. And it, it does, it, 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 it revolutionizes things in the, in the realm of politics, in the realm of economy, uh, in the realm of, of, of theology. Look, just the, one of the big ideas of the Exodus, which we don't think about, but it's a big part of it, is that the Exodus is an equalizing event. We all came out slaves. Nobody in amongst the Jewish people can schwitz and show off and say, <laughs> "Well, I'm descended from so and so." We were all slaves, and we were all there at Sinai, and that makes all of us equal. Yeah, some of us get richer—that's true—but no one can say, as is so often done, you know, "Oh, oh, you're from the aristocracy. You're a lord. You're a sir. You're a king." We mm-hmm. don't have any of that. We don't have any of that. Well,
0: it's. Uh... But then that's before
1: the Greeks came up with democracy, way before. Yes, long before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. when they came up with democracy, Eve, they were talking about the top ten percent of the population.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which most people don't realize.
1: Right. It wasn't that's like right. we think of today that's one right. one
0: vote for for that's every person. Right. That's right. That's well, right. That's right. What else can you share? Do you have anything else uh, without giving uh, away too much of?
1: I think. Uh, let me see what's going right. to be. That was. Uh, uh, this was most of it. Amazing. Think. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, I do. There, there was one set one second. Okay. okay. Here. Right. Okay. So, um, um, so this, we're going to go to at night. The Luxor temple is just astonishing, beautiful at night. And we're going to be doing this. This is, uh, at the Aswan dam, uh, that temple. This is where some of those images that I showed before were, let me just, uh, uh, you can see here the map, the map is important. It's important to understand the map of Egypt a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. So here we are in Eretz Israel. We're over here. Okay, right. on the trip, we're gonna be in three three areas primarily. Uh, here is Cairo and Cairo is pretty much where the pyramids are. Um, let me just say, and everyone should hold their seats, okay? The Jews didn't build the pyramids, sorry. No, Mm-mm. And the Torah doesn't say that we built the pyramids either. The pyramids are, are prior to the time of the Torah and when you think of it, what the Torah says is that the Jews built Arami they built storehouses. And we are actually going to see uh, um, um, storehouses made out of mud brick with straw in it from that time, from that time. Wow. So you have here uh, uh, the pyramids, they're here, and we're gonna be seeing obviously the, the Cairo Geniza from a much later period. The mm-hmm. best stuff, most of the stuff I was showing you is from here, from a place called Luxor, which is you know 600 miles south or so of, uh, uh, from from Cairo. And this is where all the great temples and the great monuments are. And then finally down here, uh, near the border with Sudan is, um, uh, well, for us as Jews, what's so important is that there's a little island in the middle of the Nile called (laughs) Elephantine. Elephantine. Now, many of our viewers might not be familiar with this. Let me tell you why this is just such an important area and what they found there. So there's a fortress there from, I think, the fifth century or so BCE, and they found there the writings of a huge Jewish colony in this fortress, all the way down here on the Sudanese border. Well, what are Jews doing down here on the Sudanese border? Well, we know the book of Jeremiah tells us that after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jews didn't know where to go or what to do. Should they stay, be under the Babylonians? The first temple, right. Yeah, the first temple. Everything's destroyed. And a whole bunch of them have the idea much like my grandparents and your grandparents Eve in Russia or wherever in the pale who said, where we are now is terrible. Conditions here are terrible. We wanna go to a place that is prosperous. We wanna go to a place that is known for its safety. So we'll go to North America. If you're Mm -hmm. living in, 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 in the land of Israel right after the destruction of the first temple, then that parallel is Egypt. Egypt is prosperous. Egypt has no enemies because there's deserts all around. And so they all flocked to Egypt, including Jeremiah himself. And apparently some of the Jews, you know, Jews spread out just like they did in America. You know, they didn't all stay in New York. Uh, and, and some Jews wound up uh, at this very southern point in, in the Nile at in, in Elephantine. And what's so significant is that we get a very rich picture of what Uh, diaspora life. This is the oldest diaspora community that we know about. It's from the 5th century BCE. uh, And we get a picture of what diaspora life was like for these Jews. Like I'll just give, I mean, they they describe their observance of Passover in great detail. They built a temple right there on the Sudanese border. They built a temple. And, you know, we can say, oh my gosh, that's, that's forbidden. You can only build the temple in Jerusalem. You know, that's how our sages have understood it. But we can understand very well based on the Bible why they would have built a temple. Uh, Ezekiel says to, to, and Ezekiel's living obviously in, in Babylon. Right, and right. he says to the people there, he says, God says, I will be for you mikdash me'at, a small mikdash, literally temple. The rabbis understood that as a source for synagogues. How do we know we can build a synagogue? Maybe we can't build anything. Mm-hmm. The rabbis understood that Ezekiel was talking about synagogues, but you can easily understand how someone reading that passage, where a prophet says, even when you go into the exile, I will be right. for you a small temple. Well, they built themselves a small temple. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm particularly excited about that because I took a course this year with Professor mm-hmm. S.D. Eschel, and we learned about the, pa- the, lead- the things that were found there, like, the, like a marriage, con- uh, a divorce contract and papers of ownership with Hebrew mm-hmm. names in them, which are also very interesting because one is about a woman who owned property. We're talking about quite a few years ago and also initiated the divorce, which in some ways was easier than the halachot that we have today. So it's mm-hmm. just this unbelievable glimpse of right. the transition of Judaism. Like, it's just so unique. It was just uh, it was right. wild. And wild. everything oh, there that.
1: is so perfectly preserved because it is incredibly barren and dry. Wow. Incredibly. Just like you can see in that top photo. You know, it looks right. like the area around lot. you know bone dry, 365 days a year, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no humidity.
0: Do, you, do we have any idea where Goshen was? Or we talk about- Sure, where yeah, sure, sure, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. What yeah, might yeah. that be? So Goshen, so, okay, so here's Cairo and this green area is what we call the Nile Delta. This is where the Nile splits off into a whole bunch of tributaries and therefore this area is very fertile, okay? Mm-hmm. Goshen is somewhere in here, is somewhere in here. In fact, the names that the Torah gives in in in, uh, in, in Exodus, in 12, 13, and 14, Piachirot, Migdol, yeah. Etam, these are all areas that we now know where they are. And so it would oh, really the, the, yeah. Yeah, it would appear that Kriyat Yam uh, the crossing of the sea was not here, the Red Sea, and probably not even here in the Gulf of Suez. It might have been what we call the Great Bitter Lakes, might have been here, not mm-hmm. clear, somewhere, somewhere around here. This is this is, you know, the, the because this is a more fertile area and more more moisture. There's nothing left from that period. In fact, a lot of it is now underwater. What we know, you know, that back then would have been apparently climate change has been going on for a long time, <laughs> long before nothing carbon made. emissions. Uh, but, right. You know, we're not going to talk about that. Um, um, uh, so there's nothing really to see. But, you know, we, we have a kind of a general sense of where the area of Goshen was, and it was probably up here.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yep. I mean, do we do we know? Because I mean, assuming that we were already doing things differently. For example, the Egyptians worshipped cows, yes? Or no? Oh, like, how does that hold the golden hold calf? Things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's so. That's another uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, names anyway. are
1: fascinating names, you know? I mean, uh, for example, Khur, uh, uh, Khoor in the book of Exodus, who uh, kind of uh, helped out Aaron when Moses went up to the mountain right? Hor right. Uh, right. in Egyptian is Horus, okay? The divine, the god Horus. In other words, mm-hmm. they, they definitely used some of these names, you know, just like we have Esther and Mordechai, you know? Right, uh, right. Yeah.
0: Mar- Mar- and a Durkan lot of names, a lot of the day. names
1: in Exodus, a lot of the names in Exodus are Egyptian. I was talking to a friend of mine named Pinchas about this stuff, and I said to him, Pinchas, I hate to break it to you, you don't have a Jewish name. He's like, Okay. And I mean, I say, "Come on, what oh, could be more of a Jewish name than Pinchas?" Right. No, it's Egyptian. Think about it. There's no root. There's no. There's no Hebrew root. You know, it's not like you know. Uh, uh, I don't know. My name, Yehoshua. You know, Shua. Mm-hmm. That's 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 redemption with the with right. the, the or the theophoric Shem-te. names that have exactly, the exactly. The L or Pinchas. Yav. Right. You can't even find. There's, there's too many letters in there to be to be a root. It's mm-hmm. Egyptian. It means the Nubian. We have, we have Egyptian inscriptions that have the name Pinchas. Hmm.
0: Okay, but now, it's so the Jewish name, now it's appropriate. Like yeah. Moses also, Moshe also. Maybe. Right? Is that well, Egyptian? Maybe, less, we there's, don't
1: know. Well, there's, there's less certainty about that one. Less certainty.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, so do you have any, maybe this is really not a fair question. Um, do you have any doubt that this story happened? No. As written?
1: Listen, you know, when you say as written Eve, so there's a lot of details there, you know, right. with all the people listed, you know, the, one has to address miracles, you know, I don't have any evidence for the miracles mm-hmm. themselves, but the idea that Am Yisrael were uh, uh, oppressed in Egypt at the times of Ramses II, and that something happened to them that they ascribed to a Kurdish Baruch Hu, to the Almighty, and right. used endless uh, elements of uh, pharaonic propaganda from that time, and turned it on them, something went on there. Something went on there that, uh-huh. that that they they felt compelled to to perpetuate and which has left the the greatest impact on Jewish Jewish literature, on on biblical literature. That right, to me right. says there's something there's something went on there. And I feel very comfortable.
0: Well, we have a holiday, like you mentioned, the Passover Seder. I mean, we have an evening once a year, which even Jews who are not affiliated really very much Mm -hmm. with Judaism and quite a few Christians that I know as well these Mm -hmm. days gather together and talk about this, you know, getting out of Egypt and like something, something big happened that imprinted itself Mm -hmm. on a whole lot of people Mm -hmm. a long time ago that Mm -hmm. we're still remembering. Well, well, if I wasn't excited before now, I'm super excited to go down there. I hope it all, I hope it all works. I was like, what could go wrong these days, right? What could change the plans in this very calm world that we live in? Anybody, if you have any questions now uh, for Rabbi Dr. Berman, you could put it up on the chat. Let me just see, cause some people- Yeah, did, I'll oh, just say, I don't,
1: asked... I don't know how, how much this came through. So uh, Eve is joining me uh, on a tour uh, in January uh, to Egypt. Uh, it'll be the first tour ever that is uh, to Egypt uh, that is kosher and especially I think there, may be, there may be, maybe 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 bunches of years ago there might have been kosher tours, but this mm-hmm. will be the first tour that goes with a Tanakh in hand uh, to go from site to site, from monument to monument, and say, "Here, see this this picture, this inscription. This helps us understand this in Tanakh and this in Tanakh." Just like we've done here uh, on this on this podcast today, mm-hmm. and it's being uh, it's being o- organized by uh, Kesher Tours. Uh, right. It's sold out. It's the pilot. But, uh, but please God, please God. Uh, you know, viruses allowing and politics allowing, uh, maybe and
0: weather also. You said Egypt, you can't oh, sure. go you can any only, time yeah, of year. Only, you can
1: only go in the winter. You can only go in the winter, and even in the winter, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's it's quite warm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for me, it's the ultimate field trip, and uh, I just like super excited. I've been trying. I've been actually wanted to go for a while, mm-hmm. and I was, I I, I would I would have managed with the food, so I'd bring tuna and crackers from Israel. I didn't need, but Shabbat was always the issue for me. I don't sure. travel on Shabbat and. You know the group's going to go somewhere and leave me and it wasn't going to work so uh i was super excited and i really hope that our trip goes well and safely obviously and that you can do this you know every Mm -hmm. year or whatever Mm -hmm. it is uh and really open people's eyes to an aspect Mm -hmm. of our history in egypt and of egyptian history that wouldn't be able to do without tanakh in hand somebody asked here um if you know somebody, let me see what they said. If you know it's
1: Jewish somebody, geography.
0: Yeah, No, no, actually not a Jewish name. Uh, how come I can't open here and see? Um, is Rabbi Dr. Berman familiar with Dr. Zahi Hawass? Oh, if
1: I'm not mistaken, he is like a, a, the chief archaeologist of Egypt or something like that. I, I don't know him.
0: Uh huh. No. No. Okay. More of, I
1: think he's more of a political figure, to be honest. But, uh, yeah,
0: I think no. I've read about him as well. And someone else yeah. had a question. Can you comment on David Roll's book Exodus: Myth or History, where he argues the timeline? Are you familiar? Uh, I'm not.
1: I'm not familiar with that work. Nope. Nope.
0: Okay. All right. David Goldfarb. Good question. All right. And uh, yeah, because I mean, we, we it's, it's clear that the whole timeline is uh, is a major issue um, in history in general, but definitely when it comes to to the bible and let's see if anybody else had anything um, before we let you go um there is a theory that the egyptian jews originated from the jews of elephantine a european educated ethiopian jewish leader yona bogale was of this opinion there is much that fits in terms of practices as it believed they traveled along the nile that sound uh like something maybe,
1: but look, I mean, the, the the book of Exodus, there's too much in the Torah that fits periods that are before. Mm-hmm. There are things that are in the book of Exodus that you could only. The things I like best when we're talking about dating uh, the Torah are are things that you could only know if you were alive back at a certain time. Okay. So for example, there are a whole bunch of what we call loan words. Those are words that you and I Eve would identify as Hebrew words, but they are in fact taken from the Egyptian language, like the word Teva. Okay. Like the basket that Moses was put in or the ark that that, that Noah built is also called Teva. Teva teva is is an Egyptian word. It turns out. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of Egyptian words and, What's so fascinating in terms of dating is that uh, the way in which they're spelled in the Torah mandates that they must have come into the Hebrew language in the 13th century BC, because at later dates, dates, a teva, box, let's call it, okay? Or or basket was Mm -hmm. no longer called teva, it was called tevi, okay? So if the Torah is calling it teva, that's the way in which Egyptians pronounced it in the earlier period. There's a whole bunch hmm. of things that are like that, okay? Hmm. So that's why it's hard for me that together with many of the things that, that tie the, 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 the accounts of the book of Exodus to the 13th century BCE, make it difficult for me to accept that uh, Jews started in Elephantine, Lf- how did they get there? I might ask that that opinion, okay? And that the Jews right. come from there, you know? I mean, especially when they're- no, owned- the,
0: Ethi- the, the question was specifically Ethiopian Jews. Um, um so where there's some tradition that they're from the tribe of dan when there was the exile they went down there there's other traditions that they come from the child of queen of sheba and king solomon i see there's a oh, I lot see. So, I, of yeah, interesting so, uh, history having to look do you
1: know maybe maybe i mean mm-hmm. but look i mean what, what's clear it, we know for sure from the book of jeremiah sixth century the yeah. Jews went to Egypt. Okay. So if we find Jews in elephantine a century later, why should we think that it's anything other than those same Jews, especially when they're talking about things like a Passover and stuff, it looks like they're taking traditions that were clearly, you know, uh, in circulation in the land of Israel around the time of the destruction.
0: Doesn't the Bible tell us not to go back to Egypt though? I'm not canceling uh, my reservation. I'm just, I understand.
1: I think that's uh, uh, like to, to, to purchase horses and things like that. So we'll, We'll stay away uh-huh. from
0: horses. We'll yeah. stay away from horses.
1: I think so. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Amazing, thank you so Good. much.
1: All um, right, Eve. thank you so much. And I really enjoyed this, I'm to, sure my uh, viewers did as
0: well. And yeah. anybody, if you were watching this and there was someone who wanted to watch it, but was maybe working at one o'clock in the afternoon on a mm. on a Monday, this will be sent out um, by one Israel fund. If you're on our email list, you will be getting a copy of this. It'll also be on the website, along with the other webinars that we have taped during the course of this year and the virtual tours and the projects that we're running and any news that we wanna share. Um, And uh, really I'm so, I'm really glad that uh, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman joined us this evening and just to illuminate for us the magnificent history of this area and of our people's journey. And this is way back. This is like the first journey or one of the first journeys. And with a lot of question marks and so many things have been written about it by just brilliant people over the ages. And uh, so thank you for really illuminating some of that and some of the connections with the Tanakh that I, I didn't know and I'm sure that most of my viewers didn't know as well. So and here, some of our, uh, some of the people viewing. Fascinating. Thank you. Really a lot of appreciation. And if you want to continue, obviously, everybody, get, get an imam. You, um, you can follow some of his mind and his thinking. Uh, even from the comfort of your lazy boy in your living room. So uh, thank you again. And thank you everyone for for tuning in. We're going to be back next month, I hope, with uh, with another, I keep digging up amazing people. It's really an honor to be able to do this. So thank you everyone. And thanks to the office, of course, One Israel Fund for providing the platform for this and making it free so that everybody can enjoy some of the, um, really the, the tremendous people that we have doing a lot of thinking, even about things that, you think like, what more could you say? And you come up with what more can you say and what more can you learn? So take care everyone, Eve Harrow, Director of Community Development and Tourism, can't wait to get back to the tourism part, for when it's Israel Fund, and uh, we'll be back in just be well. Thank you.
2: As the masks are coming off and much of the world is turning not only against Israel, but yes, against the Jewish people. If you feel different, if your love for Israel is growing deeper and stronger, if you're thirsting to cleave to the nation of Israel and to the God of Israel, if you're thirsting to learn authentic Torah from Jews in Judea, then the Land of Israel Fellowship is for you. Hundreds of individuals and families from around the world come together on Zoom every week in what can only be described as a fellowship of love, friendship, of learning, and praying, and belonging. A fellowship really unlike any other. It's more than just a movement, it's a family. To learn more about the Land of Israel Fellowship, click on www.thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship, or send an email to fellowship at landofisrael.com. Love and blessings from Judea.